Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Gravy with talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, Prince Harry loses his High Court challenge over the level of his security in the UK. Turns out you can't have your Queen Victoria sponge cake and eat it, Sonny. Uh, the blissfully homeless MP, Lee Anderson, is courted by Reform UK and tells patrons of a bar in the Commons, I like the job, I'll go wherever we'll win. And Angela Rayner refuses to answer questions about her tax affairs as the row about the council house she sold ranges on. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've got another jam-packed show for you tonight, from Prince Harry, the Herbert's latest tantrum over police protection, to a new battle brewing on the streets of London. We'll tell you about why the playwright, who is putting a show on in London, only wants a black audience. And we've got all the latest news on Lee Anderson's shelf life as well. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Turn the volume up to 11. It's that time again to get the violins out. That's right. Prince Harry has lost his bid for UK security after moaning he'd been singled out and treated less favourably than other royals. Excuse me. I'll just wipe my eyes. Sorry. Um, sorry, sorry. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex were stripped of their round-the-clock protection after Megxit in 2020. It's just a shame that now the taxpayer will have to spend even more money on his appeal. Let's hear the thoughts of former Head of Royal Protection, Mr Di Davis, and Talk TV's Royal Editor, Sarah Hewson. Sarah, let me start with you first, if I may. Um, this was another court case, another loss uh, for Prince Harry, as he likes to be called. Um, it seems to me that he spent about as much money on this case as he won from the last case that he didn't get very much money for. And meanwhile, it's costing us a fortune. Well, yeah, we know that the fees for the Home Office in November of last year, uh, so they're going to be higher than that, but the, the latest figures we had were for over £400,000. Prince Harry's now going to be liable for those fees as well as his own. But he's not giving up because he has said, having lost his case at the High Court today, he has made it be known that he is going to appeal this and he will take it to the Court of Appeal. As we've heard so many times from Prince Harry, uh, the fight goes on. He maintains that he should be entitled to round-the-clock security uh, available as and when he needs it, that it should be automatic, uh, his right to police protection. But the High Court said today, no, uh, RAVEC, the committee that makes the decisions on royal and VIP security, was right. It was justified and lawful in its initial decision that was made, gosh, four years ago now, back in February 2020, that... The situation had changed. He was no longer a working member of the royal family and therefore it wasn't in the public interest that he should have that full police protection now. Yes, exactly. And Di, let me come to you uh, as a former royal protection man and a royal historian as well. I mean, the way that some people are reacting to this, you'd think that Prince Harry had been abandoned completely and utterly by the police and by the government and by his own family. Um, but he will still qualify, will he not, for protection, uh, depending on what he's doing when he comes here. Well, hello, and you're absolutely right. Yes, this does go back four years. And, of course, at that time, he had departed uh, to Canada. He still had royalty protection for some time while he was there, but I think somebody decided enough was enough, and then off he went to California. Yeah. But you're quite right. When he comes to this country, as has been evidence in his last visit, you could see he was well protected. Uh, and Even though he hadn't given 28 days' notice, 
quite rightly in one sense, he got that protection because he was here almost on royal duty in the fact that he was seeing the king. So, yes, you're quite right. He will get it when the circumstances are right, when circumstances dictate there is a risk, if indeed there is a risk, but as with all members of the royalty, there is a risk, but it's a question of where you put your resources. Yes. Those men and women who protect the royals are tasked by the government, by us, to put their lives at risk, uh, to protect those this country deemed to be at risk. Ravak is well established. It is comprised of well knowledgeable men, as far as I know, they're all men, there may be women. But what I'm trying to say is they're very, very experienced people who wouldn't take these decisions lightly. Against them is Harry. And as I've always said, there's Harry's truth and then there's the real truth. (laughs) What have we got to determine in this case? That the real truth has prevailed, I hope. Well, exactly so. And I'll come back to you, Di, in a moment, just to ask you about the niceties of how these decisions can be made sort of in the future and, and when he does come back. But, Sarah, let me come back to you, because one of the things that his lawyers said was that he was being treated unfairly, as if he was being singled out. And it seems to me to be very kind of symptomatic of Harry's view of the world, that, you know, he thinks everyone's picking on him, uh, he thinks he's having a rough time, he thinks it's all everybody else's fault, and suddenly he's the victim once again, and that's the part he's playing. He's also saying uh, that his children will not feel at home in Britain unless... Uh, they can be protected. Well, if they don't feel at home in Britain, maybe he shouldn't have left Britain. Yeah, and it's an argument he's been making for a long time, that it's not safe for him to bring his family back to the United Kingdom at any point. I don't get the impression that Meghan is desperate to return to these shores anytime soon, despite Harry apparently having made that offer to members of his family that he would step up if required, while his father is undergoing cancer treatment. What we did learn today is that Harry was so incensed by the decision made by Revac back in 2020 that he uh, wrote a letter to the Cabinet Secretary, Sir Mark Sedwell, demanding to know exactly who it was that had made that decision. And he said, who would put me in a position that no one was willing to put my mother in 23 years ago? And he argued that the risk to him is greater uh, than it was to his mother with additional layers of racism and extremism. Someone is comfortable with taking accountability for what could happen. I'd like that person's name. So he wanted to know just who is it who says I don't deserve this security. I think he felt this was very, very personal. Right. But again, if I go back to Di Davis on this one, it hasn't been a refused permission to have protection. He just doesn't get it automatically. And I think that's fair enough because he's now no longer a working royal. He's now put himself in the firing line, if you he, if he want to put it that way, by admitting to killing a load of members of the Taliban. You know, I mean, but he's not in any more danger, really, than anybody else is. And if he is, the risk takers and the risk assessors will, will say, uh, Di, will they not? He can have the protection while he's here. Well, again, you're absolutely right. And, of course, going back to his late mother, she decided herself she didn't want protection. And it wasn't lack of protection in one sense. It was the lack of professional professions in yes. professionals in Paris, mm. which led to her untimely death. Right. She wasn't protected by us. She had decided she didn't want royalty protection. She yeah. was going through quite a phase at that time, and so on and so forth. But you're absolutely right. Every time he's come here for anything related to royals... He has had protection, and and so be it. I I really think this should have been decided behind closed doors, without his peak, without Mm. his uh, losing it, as it were, um, four years ago. But we're still pursuing this, and as you're 
uh, Royal Correspondent has said, this is going to cost us way over, I reckon, close to a million pounds by yeah. the time we've finished, just because he feels entitled. It's time, with great respect, he shut up, got off the scene. For somebody who wants protection so badly, he goes about it very badly indeed. Mm. He doesn't keep a low profile. He insists on going to all manner of things in America where, frankly, if somebody wanted to take him out, that's where I would advise them to do it, God forbid. Yeah. But what I'm trying to say is for a man who wants protection, he and his family, and let's face it, the children don't know. They're so young, they don't know whether they want to live in Britain or not. So that's absolute nonsense. And with great respect, he doesn't have to talk a lot of nonsense half the time. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Di. I could not agree with you more. Thank you very much indeed for selling us uh, all of that. Sarah, let me come back to you and just talk about a couple of the other royal stories because, of course, this comes uh, after that shocking news yesterday um, about the death um, of, at just the age of 45 um, of the uh, Prince and Princess and Michael of Kent's son-in-law, I guess he, he would be. Um, and I imagine this is not, again, another great time for the royal family as we know, William's off again with, with some personal problem. We don't know what it is. Not a great time for them to be reminded about the nuisance that is Prince Harry, is it? I mean, it has been a terrible start to 2024 for the royal family and another really difficult week, as you've just outlined, yeah. uh, Mike. That news uh, last night that Thomas Kingston had been found dead at the age of 45, the husband of Lady Gabriella Windsor, as she was. They married in 2019 in St George's Chapel, uh, just a year after Harry and Meghan had married in the same uh, place. A and to all accounts from his friends, everything seemed fine uh, last week. They were out at the National Gallery together, seeming happy, and this has come as a huge uh, shock. Uh, really devastating news. Uh, and Prince William, as you mentioned, uh, wasn't at uh, Westminster, uh, wasn't at St George's Chapel yesterday for uh, the service of Thanksgiving for his godfather, also uh, Lady uh, Gabriella Windsor's godfather as well, King Constantine of Greece. A lot of questions raised because obviously there's a huge amount of concern. If someone removes themselves at the last minute mm. from a big event like this, what does that say? Uh, well, we were told it was a personal matter. We were reassured that uh, the Princess of Wales was continuing to do well. It wasn't related to the death of Thomas Kingston, but it remains a mystery why mm. he did have to pull out with just 46 minutes uh, to go from his godfather's service of Thanksgiving, where he was meant to be doing a reading. Yes, exactly right. And, of course, more speculation, which, which nobody particularly wants to, to have going on, and everybody says we don't want to speculate, but... Because inevitably, if you say it's a personal matter and people have said everything from, well, he could have had a toothache to uh, he could have had a tummy bug to, you know, it could have been one of his children. You know, it could have been any number of things, but they've been quite specific about some stuff lately. It seems to me unusual that they would be so vague, isn't it? This is the age-old problem with the royal family. They've often grappled with if you give a little and you let the public in, then that carries on, you have to give more and more. So we've had this information about the King's uh, cancer diagnosis, but then they wanted to, to stop and not give too mm. much information. We were told that the Princess of Wales had had abdominal surgery, but they didn't want to uh, be giving a running commentary on that or any more updates. Prince William has uh, 
let his team describe it as a personal matter. But, of course, that raises more questions. Right. Uh, and we certainly didn't get any answers. They really, really didn't want to speculate on it or elaborate further. And I think because of the backdrop of this, because we're all quite jittery uh, over uh, the state of the royal family yeah. at the moment, you know, look at the images yesterday where you've got Prince Andrew yeah, front and centre leading the family mm. in, into church. Uh, when William removes himself, you do start to wonder why. Why? Because you wouldn't imagine that he would do that unless there was a pretty good reason. No. And is there any sort of clarity about when his next appearance is meant to be and whether he's going to be at it? Yeah, we're going to be seeing him over the next couple of days, uh, Mike. He has got two planned engagements over the next uh, two days and uh, we are told that he will be back to work for those. So it was a a short absence uh, for him. We hadn't seen him since the 18th of February uh, when he went to the BAFTAs, but he is uh, back to work tomorrow. And of course, all eyes will be on him then. Okay. Sarah, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Sarah Houston, Talk TV's royal correspondent there uh, with the lowdown on what's going on uh, with all sorts of members of the family um, who seem to be having, as she said, a terrible start to the year. You're watching the incredible Independent Republican Mike Graham. Coming up next, suspended Tory MP Lee Anderson is claiming he'll go wherever will win as he considers his political future. Stay exactly where you are. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, a dangerous attack dog was spotted on the loose in a Westminster boozer last night. Oh, sorry, no, wait a minute. Uh, it wasn't that at all. It was Lee Anderson weighing up his options after a split from the Tory party. And there's a possible defection to reform on the cards, although that contradicts the bit about him saying he'll go wherever wins. Joining me to discuss all of this, my panel's here, Madeline Grant, journalist at Telegraph, Stephen Barrett, barrister and writer, and Ella Whelan, of course, columnist at Spikes Online. But first, let us speak to Talk TV's chief political commentator, Mr Peter Cardwell. Peter, very good evening to you. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Very well indeed. And I know you've had a very busy day today, so we'll try not to keep you too long. But tell us exactly what we know today, because as we have a sort of Lee Anderson watch going on, um, yeah. I don't know what he's up to right now, but tell us what you know about what he's been up to. Well, a very trusted source told Talk TV that Lee Anderson was boasting yesterday in Parliament about how he's being courted by Reform UK. We know about the meeting that he had with its leader, Richard Tice, in a uh, travel lodge kind of uh, premier inn off a motorway service station. But he was in Parliament yesterday talking to people, saying that he'd actually first been asked as a Labour person to, he wasn't an MP at the time, for by Nigel Farage apparently, to become a member of UKIP back in 2015. But he certainly said he enjoys the job that he does and wants to do it wherever he thinks he will win. He apparently, according to our trusted source, even joked about uh, joining the Liberal Democrats. But I don't think he was being serious at that point. No. And I mean, I suppose we will wait, wait and see what the, uh, the Tory party will do. Because every time any Tory MP goes on television or any minister goes on television, they get asked, what was it that he did wrong? Why did you suspend him? And they can never answer that question. They can only say, well, we suspended him because what he said wasn't right but they don't say it was Islamophobic, and they're going to be caught in that sort of wheel for a while, aren't they? Mm. Well, you're absolutely right, Mike. This is day six right. of this uh, scandal, and, I mean, I think the next logical move is probably for Lee Anderson to join Reform UK. I wouldn't be surprised if that happens, and he would be their first 
MP. The party Reform UK has only actually existed for about the last three years or so, but of course it came out of the UKIP split, which became the Brexit party, which became Reform UK. All about complicated, but nonetheless, people will remember that trajectory. But yeah, you're right. Uh, for the Conservatives, this is still very, very difficult for them. Rishi Sunak had a pretty good Prime Minister's questions today, but very, very personal uh, between him and Keir Starmer. But certainly from Lee Anderson, he's still the person people are talking about in Parliament, wondering just what is he going to do next? Yeah, absolutely right. Well, Peter, thank you very much indeed. Peter Cardwell there checking in with us uh, on the latest on Lee Anderson. Who knows if he's in another Commons bar tonight. Um, Madeline, you would have been uh, watching PMQs today. I mean, this kind of story is just going to drag on and on because I said, I think on Monday, um, if Keir Starmer does become the next Prime Minister, he should immediately give Lee Anderson a peerage. But just taking all of the, um, you know, kind of focus away from Keir Starmer and Labour and, and the Speaker and what happened last week. It's all gone. Well, I, I kind of blame the Westminster bubble for yeah. that, partly. I think that this is the kind of, like, slightly tr trivial story that really gets them going. Mm. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the Prime Minister did actually suspend Lee Anderson pretty quickly after those remarks. So I don't actually think it's possible to argue, as Labour is doing, that the Tories didn't care about these remarks or that they no. were relaxed. It seems to be like splitting hairs. They, they will condemn it, but not for the reasons that they want him to condemn those remarks for. Right. So they keep it going. But, I mean, this is really quite trivial stuff given everything else that's going on in the country right now. Well, particularly when they're talking about giving, you know, stab vests to MPs and, and spending exactly. £1 million pounds on protecting yeah. them. I mean, when this story blew up, I really sensed there was this kind of almost relief that we could finally talk about the thing that they wanted to, like yeah. hurty words yeah. and offensive Tories. And not the bigger issue, which is what last week revealed, yeah. about the way that normal democratic procedures are protocols of parliament, etc., being suspended based on intimidation mm. and harassment um, that MPs are, are, are receiving. Yes, exactly right. And Stephen, you've been talking about this on, on social media that, you know, the word Islamophobia has become, you know, the, the kind of the catchphrase for all of this. You've got people on one hand saying this is a word we must use. Other people saying, we know we mustn't use it. It's, it's a blasphemy law by the back door. Legally speaking... What's yes. the difference between racism and Islamophobia? Well, that, that's the, for me, obviously, that's the interesting point. Mm. So there is, there is what is purporting to be a definition, a, a definition of Islamophobia. It doesn't work. Right. It's far too fat. It's very badly written. It's largely contradictory. I mean, if, if the person who drafted it actually wants to protect uh, Islam, then there are bits of it which ex exclude it. it mm. It's just really silly. It's just badly written. As a result, Islamophobia doesn't really exist. Now, ordinarily we treat bigotry against religion as a different type of, 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 of bigotry, yeah. a different class. We give a very special case to, to Jews and to Judaism, and that's largely because the bad people always insist that Judaism is an ethnos. Right. You know, in Nazi Germany, you were not allowed to stop being a Jew by just going, I, I've converted to Christianity, yeah. I don't want to be a Jew anymore. Right. You weren't allowed to do that. We, the, the bad people who punish and who are awful to, to Jewish people, never let them escape. Mm. So, so they are a special, they are treated as a special condition. Other religions... Well, hence anti-Semitism rather than racism. Yeah, exactly. Well, well it is anti-Semitism, hence anti-Semitism being racism. Right. But bigotry against other religions or, or disliking other religions doesn't normally get that characteristic. It's not normally a race. And it's odd to try and claim Islam as a race. It's got over a billion mm. members. What racial characteristics do they share? It, yeah. it, this is, you know, and, and are we going to do this with Hinduism? Are we going to do this yeah. with Christianity? Where is it? Because law must be applied consistently. So if we're going to treat this like law, are we going to treat it consistently? And really the, the, the cleft stick that the Conservatives are in is that, they, that uh, Lee Anderson was, was offensive 
and they don't think people should be offensive. Mm. And they should they should just say that. You know, yeah. we don't think our MPs should, should be offensive. But it, they're caught in this trap. And I'm with Mads that this is very much draining attention away mm. from the fact that our constitution was subverted. We had very serious right. questions about the Speaker of the House of Commons. Probably the most serious questions we've had about any Speaker of the House of Commons in, in years. And they're all being distracted by Lee Anderson getting, yeah. getting drunk in a bar. Yeah. Ella, um, what do you make of it all? Maybe I think it's not so trivial um, because I think that the it, it reveals some of the cowardice in politics, particularly in the Conservative Party, because whether or not you use the Islamophobia word, um, I think at best it's, it's like Stephen says, it's become far too broad and encompasses yeah. far too much to be taken seriously. But... You know, Rishi Sunak and any Conservative Party that was on the airwaves in the sort of 24 hours after Anderson's comment just sort of said, well, it's not right. It's not a good... Right. No, it's not Clumsy. a right word. Yeah, and it's, it's like, no, spell it out. It's obviously prejudiced to suggest... The inference in Anderson's comments was that because Sadiq Khan is Muslim, therefore he's more likely to be taken charge yeah. of by Islamists. Whether you call it Islamophobia, whether you call it prejudice, whether you call them, you know, words that you can't say this hour of the night on television... Be clear about yeah. what it is that's gone wrong. Although, to be fair, he did, also, he did also call Keir Starmer in the, throes, in the thrall of, of Islamists as well, which, of course, everybody's now conveniently forgotten about because people say, oh, well, it must be mm. racist because he only said it about a Muslim. But actually, he didn't. He well, said it about they, Keir Starmer. But they, but just it was his mate's part that was really objectionable. Yeah, yeah. I think and, so. And the, yeah. the, 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 I think the important thing is that there's this kind of mood growing at the moment Paul Scully came out and um, sort of made these suggestions that there are no go zones in London. Lee Anderson is being very bullish and saying, I won't apologise. I'm, you know, mm. I'm going to say it as it is. And there's this picture being created of London as this sort of hellhole run <laughs> by extremists where women can't walk at night and everything's terrible and everyone's knifing each other. I mean, none of these... Lee Anderson clearly hasn't taken a walk out at night in London because that's not what it's mm. like. And I get very defensive of people slandering my hometown. But it can be like that in London. It can be like that in New York. It can be like that in Liverpool. It can be like that in a lot of cities. But I think... I think the and there are certainly areas of Britain, I think people would say, which have become difficult for certainly Jewish people to go into. Well, there's two things that can be true at the same time. Lee Anderson can be being a, you know... An, an idiot and someone who should, uh, you know, be reprimanded for what he said. And actually, I think Australians are sort of being racist. Mm. Uh, and at the same time, the response to his comments, and there was this interview on the uh, Today programme from somebody who used to advise Boris Johnson about how to talk to the Muslim community. And, and it was nothing really to do with Anderson's comments. All he was saying was, we have to come out and stand, uh, you know, stand up against Islamophobia when asked about... Islamism, Hamas. No, 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 we have to talk about Islamophobia. So there is a censorious yeah. use mm. of the term, right. which means just shut up, say the word, say it's Islamophobic, mm. and then no more debate. But this is the problem. problem with our current sort of discourse, isn't it? And it's been like this since Brexit. It's been like this with, with all sorts of issues, which if you're on one side, you can't possibly counter anybody saying anything against what you believe. And there's no kind of proper discourse and discussion about anything anymore. Well, it's Apart the, from on this show, obviously. <laughs> it, it's the infantilization of politics, yeah. and that's because power was taken out of politics. Mm. With the Maastricht Treaty and then with the Lisbon Treaty, as power is taken to the EU, mm. Westminster becomes largely... They forgot how to be sensible. Well, well they forgot the, the dignity of power. They forgot the importance mm. of it. So we're not having a nuanced conversation about anything that's happening, about the 31 million being spent on defending MPs, no. about on, on any issue. Instead, we're getting performance theatre. Right. And actually, it's starting to lose any real credibility. I mean, it, they do feel well, like I they're I think acting. politicians well, are now at an all-time low in terms of trust and, and faith from, from the 
from the populace. And I was going to say, I saw a couple of questions today that were interesting uh, on social media. If we're spending £31 million on protecting MPs, could we please know who it is that's threatening them? Well, precisely. But we haven't seen that, have we? Precisely. And I'm getting really fed up with the, the kind of the, the threat that if one speaks out frankly, about what's going on, yeah. then that is inflaming the tension. Right. Well, yeah, don't the, say it. Yeah. I mean, I mean instead I mean, of arrest if, the guy who's got the, if the, that's the club. What we're, if that's what we're spending, if this is what's going on, if genuinely our processes are being subverted because of threats to the lives of yeah. MPs, then I say that's pretty inflamed already, isn't right. it? And, and, and it does and no Ella, one any favours to... you don't to... deal with this thing by saying, let's all go work from home and never come out. Yeah, well, there, there was a report a month ago or something by the Joe Fox Foundation... Joe Fox... Joe Cox Foundation, um, which looked into toxicity in politics. Mm. Um, and it it um, mentioned, you know, that people don't really understand what MPs do for a job. And, you know, that means that they get cross when they email them. And, you know, really, we need to make the process whole more open. And at no point in this report on toxicity did it mention Islamism right. or anti-Semitism or... Uh, gender critical, you know, didn't mention right. Rosie Duffield's name. It didn't mention any of the things no. that you would immediately think of when you mm. thought of toxicity in politics. Though, yeah. So they're all sort of lying to themselves. Yeah. I mean, even the Labour Party has sort of got its fingers in its half of half of its MPs are saying, "Look, there's a real problem building in my constituency. Mm. I don't know what to do about yeah. it." And then the, the sort of cabinet, shadow cabinet, are saying, "La la la la, nothing to see here." But I think the problem with um, politicians at the moment is that they're all careerists. I mean, Lee Anderson is, you know, what a kind of charlatan. He's mm. just saying, I'll go wherever. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> obviously your joke about reform might <laughs> might play itself out, but he just has, he's just somebody who wants to hold court in the common spa. He's mm. power mad. And I think you can Although see people do similar say... things with Braverman, similar yeah. things with Rishi Sunak. I mean, similar things with Keir Starmer. Yeah. They're all looking forward to the point at which they can close the door on their political career and open it on the after-dinner speeches. Yeah. And I think that's pretty disgusting. It is yeah. pretty bad. But, I mean, people say that Neil... Uh, Neil... Uh, that Lee Anderson is, in fact, quite a decent uh, politician, quite a good local politician. He actually does see constituents. He actually does help them out. You know, all of the things. We so know he's... We, we know he's <laughs> brash. We know he's all of those things. Well, Corbyn's never been criticised for that. He's been criticised for being a mate of a mass. I mean, it's slightly different. I mean, he might be very nice to his constituents. But, but in the end as well, surely we have to have this situation stopped where seemingly some activists think it's OK to just go up to people in the street, shout at them, prevent them from speaking, visit their constituency offices, terrorise them, you know, chase them down the road. That can't go on, surely. It's got to stop. The thing that, that I often notice when people are talking, speaking out about this, we saw it recently, actually, with people like Extinction Rebellion and Justin yeah. Boyle. They often kind of say that because their grievances are so strong that they're kind of victims, that what is going on in the world is so dangerous, mm. that they, it basically gives them the right to do literally anything they mm. want at all. Like, the way I feel is really strong. And I think we've seen similar with some of the... The way that some of the Gaza protests yeah, have turned into totally. something really objectionable. Yeah, because if you are in any way supporter of Israel, you must be an absolute scumbag. Well, if, if they dead. say, oh, it's a genocide going on, then that justifies any yeah. kind of behaviour, no matter what it is. And I think that, that attitude is, is kind of really... Um, I notice it more and more, and I think we really have to, to take on that mm. idea very, very strongly. Absolutely right. Well, listen, we've got lots more to say and lots more to talk about, so thank you very much indeed for all of that. You're watching the one and only Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, we'll size up the government's plan to put £31 million towards bolstering MP security, plus Downey Street considers changing the laws on demonstrations. Stay exactly where you are.
Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, joining me now uh, to discuss all sorts of things is political commentator Chloe Dobbs. We're going to kick off, Chloe, with a conversation about Angela Rayner because Angela Rayner uh, was in the newspapers at the weekend, Sunday, I think it was, the Mail on Sunday broke a story about how she'd sold a council house that she had bought before she was a politician uh, and made something like a £48,000 profit. Lots of Labour apparatchiks were up in arms saying, oh, what's wrong with that? Why can't uh, um, a, a Labour MP actually make some money out of buying a council house and selling it? But the trick to the story is that she may or may not have been living there as a, a sort of a first residence. And if it wasn't the case that she was living there, then she would not be able to make that money without paying capital gains tax on it. The story's been sort of rumbling around mm. for a few days and it's suddenly starting to pick up a little bit of traction. And Harry Cole from The Sun tweeted this today, just a few hours ago. 1.20 today, Starmer's spokesman says, all further questions about Angela Rayner's tax affairs are to be directed to Angela Rayner's office, right? At 3.20, two hours later, Angela Rayner's office say questions should be directed to the Labour Party press office. And at 3.30, Labour press office say questions should be directed to Angela Rayner's office. So they're kind of going round and round in circles and nobody really wants to address the story. Yeah, just trying to hand the problem to someone yeah. else. Yeah, and I mean, it may well be that she hasn't done anything wrong because if she was living there, there's nothing wrong with making 48,000 quid. Some people can say she's a bit of a hypocrite because she's talking about trying to reduce um, the discount that you get for selling a council house on. So um, it really depends on whether she was living there or not. And there seems to be some dispute about that mm. because she got married to a guy who she said was living in a different property for a time while she was living in that property. So there's a lot of kind of mists of, of unsurety going on. Yeah, it seems like there's been some dodgy paperwork done to yeah. make sure that she's able to make this 48K profit. I think the reason this is making the headlines is because she's criticising a scheme that she has um, been able to yes. have a huge, huge advantage from. Um, and I think that what this is revealing is that the Labour Party cannot take the moral high ground anymore. Yeah. We have this saying, Tory sleaze. It's always the Tories that are up to no good, getting into scandals, be it expenses or whatever else. And Labour paint themselves as the nice guys. Yes. And then we've had this. We've had everything that's gone on with Azhar Ali. Um, in Rochdale, the Labour Party seems to be getting scandal after scandal. Mm. They're maybe trying to sweep this under the carpet this week so they can keep all the limelight on Lee Anderson. Yes. So, well, that's the exactly what they're hoping to do. But yeah. the problem is, is that now James Daly, Conservative MP for Bury North, has written to Greater Manchester Police to ask mm. them if they will investigate and find out whether any of these documents were correct and if these any of these documents were, uh, in fact, not correct. Because if they weren't, she'll have to kind of answer for it. And at the moment, all she's done is sort of answered on a thread on Twitter to say it's all rubbish. Which is not really of, enough, is it? Which is not quite enough if you want to be in government. And I think this is what's going to fi if you finally start happening to the Labour Party. If it looks like they're getting closer to being in Downing Street, they're going to have to answer an awful lot of questions about a lot of stuff. Yeah, exactly. A woman in such a high position in the party, you, you cannot expect to be in a position that high authority in politics and not be under scrutiny for what yeah. you do in your private life, mm. that is part of the job, I'm afraid. Yes. Um, you cannot do dodgy stuff with your tax returns. You right. cannot do dodgy stuff with the paperwork on your house if you're no. in such a high position. And you it expect to even... get away with it. So good on that Tory MP. For yeah. And it doesn't matter, really, if it happened before she was an MP because it mm. still means that it has some relevance. And she had already been selected, we believe, by the time that all happened. 
to be a Tory, to be a Labour MP while the, while the whole sale of the house was going on. Um, basically, there's a book that's out now from Lord Ashcroft who says that Miss Rayner bought a former council house in Stockport under the right to buy scheme in 2007, sold it eight years later, made £48,500 in profit. But as I say, the question is all about whether she was living there at the time. Because if it was a second home, you've got to pay capital gains tax. I mean, there's a lot of people getting quite worked up on various newspaper websites saying, well, if that's the case, I want my capital gains tax back because I sold a house and I got taxed for it. Yeah, exactly. It shouldn't be one rule for politicians and another for the rest of yeah. us peasants in society. Exactly. Um, and as I said, this tells you a lot about someone's character mm. if an MP is breaking the rules. Like yeah. I said, Labour paint themselves as the, the moral party. Holier than thou. Exactly. The they word. think that there's some kind of holy religion that mm. would never do anything wrong. And that myth is starting to be broken mm. apart yes. now with this going on. And I... I can't remember. I think it was a Labour councillor recently was also found to be saying that the Tories aren't building enough social housing yeah. while she's clinging on to mm. her council home whilst earning something like yeah. 80 grand a year. There's always plenty of yeah. that stuff to go around. But let's move on slightly exactly. because there's been an awful lot uh, of non-stop protesting about the situation in Gaza over the last few months. Now the government's looking at ways to manage it with these incessant demonstrations and the pressure they are putting on policing, starting with 31 million quid to be spent on bolstering MP security after several parliamentarians like Tobias Elwood were targeted at home. I mean, one of the things James Cleverly is looking to do, the Home Secretary, is mm. to say, well, you know, surely with the police now saying it's cost 25 million so far to police all of this stuff, at least the, th the, the least thing they should do is give more notice of when they want to actually make these demonstrations happen. But the demonstrators are saying, we'll do whatever we like. Thanks very much. We won't bother telling you. I know. And I think when we saw them on Tower Bridge on mm. Saturday, just completely bringing the world to a halt, I think they hadn't told anyone that they no, were going to be there. absolutely not. That and was completely unacceptable. So and they should be held to account. Of course. No, effectively, they can bring a street to a complete standstill, a major crossing across the river to a complete standstill, and nobody does anything. I know. And this is every single Saturday mm. now that we're seeing absolute chaos. We've seen this report come out um, from the Home Affairs Committee showing that 90% of Jews avoid city centres right. on a Saturday. Right. Most people work Monday to Friday. They've only got two days to yeah. enjoy themselves. And Saturday, you're locked in your home terrified. Mm. We've seen Jewish homes get targeted. It's absolutely unacceptable. Mm. And what this is costing a lot in policing. Yes. And it also, it's not sustainable because there just aren't enough officers. Um, a lot of officers have missed their days off and had to work crazy yeah. overtime hours just to police it, and that's only sustainable for so long. Exactly right. But I don't think we should ban the protests and stop them from I happening. think it's time, though. I mean, James Cleverley's basically said, look, you've made your point. You've done one protest after another pretty much week in, week out since October the 7th. You know, what exactly are you going to achieve? I mean, my suggestion mm. earlier this week was to say to them, look, you can have one protest a month, you can cordon off an area in Hyde Park and you can go there and have a rally. And you can have speakers, you can have, you know, um, microphones, you can, have, you can sing songs, you can wave flags, you can build a stage, do whatever you like, but do it once a month. And I think that would be fair. Yeah, I think that actually that's quite a good solution because the amount of money it's costing, mm. that's money that could be going towards solving knife crime yeah. in London. Um, and I think also when these protests do happen, I, I think that the police do need more men or, yeah. or maybe they need to be trained better on what to do because what I'm seeing at the protests is that when something kicks off, the police deal with the person that's easiest to deal with yes. rather than the person that's in the wrong. So we saw last weekend mm. a guy, I don't know if you saw, holding up a sign saying, are Hamas a terrorist an organisation? Yes. yes or yes. Right, his sign actually goes Not along with... Not only did we the... see the sign, we had him on the show. Oh, brilliant. So there you um, go. 
that goes along with the government's view that yeah. Hamas is a prescribed terrorist organization. Yeah. But he was the one who he was, was carried away from yeah. police. Whilst these horrible people were throwing, they were throwing sticks at yeah. him and, and soil. soil and all sorts of stuff. They're the ones in the wrong. Those are the ones who should be dealt with by the police. And then we saw in Scotland that Jewish man asked, can you remove your Star of David? Because there are yeah. only three officers here. And if that huge mob kicks off at you, we won't be able to deal yeah. with it. But it's it's wrong to go after mm. the Jewish man who's in the right rather than yeah. deal with the people exactly. that are in the wrong. So it is. I think your solution's quite good, actually. I think it's not bad. Yeah. I suggested to James Cleverly if we can get him on. In fact, I've got Tobias Elwood coming on a little bit later Brilliant. on. Uh, we'll ask him about that. Chloe, thanks very much indeed. You're watching the fabulous Independent Republican Mike Graham. Coming up, another blow for the BBC as the former Attorney General accuses the broadcaster of being institutionally anti-Semitic. We'll take that on head first after the break. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Taking the Mic. Here we go again. Another chapter in the petulant prince's sob story. It's another cry for attention, another wail from the nursery. What does he want this time? Why can't he just go to sleep like every other baby? Why, oh why, does he have to make everyone look at him? If you were ever in any doubt that Harry the Herbert was anything but a massive narcissist, you wouldn't have long to wait, because the latest chapter in his 10-year-long temper tantrum is upon us. Look at me, look at me, look at me. The words scream off the page whenever you read any stories about the former working royal who now chooses to ply his trade in the commercial world. Today, he was forced to swallow yet another defeat in a court of law where he blithely spends money like water on barristers. Unfortunately for the rest of us, he's quite happy to spend our money as well. This most recent case, where he's trying to get proper protection from the police whenever he visits the United Kingdom, has already cost the taxpayer over £400,000. It's cost him more money than he won in his last foray to the High Court, and like the spoilt brat that he is, he's not accepting that he's lost. So he's going to appeal, and that will cost us all even more money. Let's just look at the facts, shall we? Harry and Meghan announced in January 2020 that they were stepping back from their roles as senior members of the royal family. In February the following year, Buckingham Palace announced that they would not be returning as working members of the royal family. That's it. The end. Or at least it should be. But of course, with good old Princess Pinocchio at the helm of his family, he just can't walk away. In court papers, Harry hilariously claims that he has been singled out and is being treated less favourably than other VIPs. Once again, it's Wow! Wow! Look at me! Look at me! Treat me as if I'm special because I am. He says his children won't be able to feel at home in Britain if it is not possible to keep them safe here. Well, maybe he should have thought of that before he moved to America. And if he thinks he can keep them safer in the United States, I'm afraid the statistics are rather against him. Last year in Los Angeles alone, there were 337 murders and 330 road traffic deaths. And that's just the major big city near his house. In America as a whole, 40,000 people were killed in gun violence in 2023. And that is a staggering number. It certainly doesn't suggest that he's living in a safe country. Surely if he really cared about the safety of his family, he'd move. We all know what he cares about. Being treated like he's still the heir to the throne, a mummy's boy that never grew up, and a constant thorn in the side of the people he doesn't like. What a pathetic, childish and puerile way to live.
Now, moving on, the BBC are at the centre of attention yet again. Former Attorney General Sir Michael Ellis has accused the public broadcaster of being institutionally anti-Semitic and that its reporting of the Israel-Hamas war had contributed to attacks on British Jews. He told MPs that BBC senior management had fundamentally failed to deal with bias and to relieve the fears of some Jewish members of staff. Can the BBC turn it around? Do they even want to turn it around? You'd have to ask that question as well. And joining me now to discuss just that is Johnny Gould, Talk TV presenter and the host of the Johnny Gould Jewish State podcast. Johnny, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's a pleasure to be in your republic, Mike. Well, listen, uh, we've got lots to talk about and we haven't got a great deal of time to do it, but, I mean, the BBC, it seems to me, um, have got a massive problem here because, clearly, the people who work there, if they are Jewish, feel uncomfortable. Uh, they were told, I think, in no uncertain terms, not to take part in a march against anti-Semitism, for one thing. We've got Jeremy Bowen, their long-time-serving foreign correspondent, happily misreporting... Um, events in the Middle East and then saying, I got it wrong, but I don't regret it. What's going on? Yeah, they've disappeared down an editorial rabbit hole and they are not willing to come back up for air at any time, Mike. The lazy reporting um, follows just one editorial route. It never asks the question why Israel is perpetuating this attack on Hamas terrorists. They don't even describe Hamas as terrorists. They are a prescribed terrorist group, according to the government. Mm. And it's an appalling state of affairs. You can see it in the Ukraine-Russia uh, coverage. Now, I'm not criticising them here, but it is one-sided based upon Ukraine, and we've definitely seen that here with the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict as well. And it doesn't broaden out either, Mike, because this is a complicated um, discussion here, because there are two conflicts going on uh, at the same time. There's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is raging in Gaza, and there is the Israeli-Arab conflict, which, believe it or not, is nearing solution. You'd never hear that on the BBC, but it is a fact between the Sunni Arabs and the Israelis that peace might be around a corner, and indeed that might be where the solution is. You would never hear that on the Today programme or anywhere else. No. I mean, we had that ludicrous um, introduction uh, by um, the Radio 4 presenter on uh, the Today programme uh, when she was asking one of the... I think it was Mark Harper, um, a government minister, if he had visited any mosques in the last month in his, in his constituency. And, and before he had a chance to, to sort of not be pilloried for not visiting one, he then managed to explain, well, actually, there aren't any mosques in my constituency. So, you know, the whole thing is ridiculous. You know, the whole gotcha moment that they try for now every time you see a BBC person interviewing anyone, um, it's always about Israel, isn't it? And now Islamophobia. Is well, yes, the, the Shifa Hospital um, coverage was the worst example of that, where they reported the highly suspect Gaza Health Ministry, which is basically a member of the Hamas team with a fax machine, yeah. who told people that 500 people had been killed when basically it was an Islamic Jihad rocket which had misfired and ended up in the car park. Yeah. We don't even know if it killed anyone. It blew a few curtains right. around and, and a pane of glass of a few windows as well. I just happened to dip into the Today programme yesterday and they asked a Gazan journalist the normal line of questioning, are you OK, hun? Everything all right in exile yeah. in Germany? Are you all right? Everything OK? That was kind of what was going on. Yeah. Meanwhile, on the Israeli side, they dipped into 
basically one of the most eminent Israeli journalists of all time. They mispronounced his name. They didn't give him the credit he deserved. He's written a book called Rise and Kill First. I'm, of course, talking about Ronen Bergman. Mm. He took eight years to write uh, about Mossad's um, secret killings and assassinations. So what he doesn't know about the front line in urban warfare, uh, no one does. And they didn't question him properly. They mispronounced his name as Ronan. And then they went back to, are you okay, hon? Jeremy Bowen is someone I have to switch out to. I get to the word, the part of the word Jeremy and I have to switch out because it's too painful to right. listen to. The narrative is one-sided. The other danger of what that report was uh, was saying in in, in the uh, the hospital attack, as you say, that was a Jeremy Bowen line. He had fed it to BBC News. They reported it, and of course, because the BBC around the world perhaps has a better reputation than it does back here at home, you know, there were riots in the streets in places like Tehran, uh, in places like Ankara. You know, people were out demonstrating that, that the Israelis had deliberately bombed a hospital, and you know, by the time the truth was actually revealed, that it turned out it wasn't. That, that, that what had happened, um, the damage was already done. Not to mention 100,000 plus who turn up uh, in um, our city of London or outside Westminster and around the West End of London in flash mobs at Liverpool Street with hundreds of people there being useful idiots for the Iranian regime. They must be licking their lips at this. This is incitement. Yes. And it is a place where Jewish people cannot go shopping or indeed anyone who has any civilised ideas of wanting to have a bit of leisure time yeah. on a Saturday afternoon. I'm afraid they are inciting the population and they are turning good people uh, away from, uh, from our sort of tolerant yeah. society. It has to stop. And what do you make of these uh, conversations which are going on just this week because of what Lee Anderson said? You know, we had Paul Scully talking about no-go areas in London, no-go areas in Birmingham. Some people in London saying, absolutely not true, there's plenty of places you can go, it's all fine and dandy. I mean, your experience might be different. Look, I mean, you know, I, I like to go to Brick Lane in Whitechapel because it was a Jewish area before it was a Bangladeshi area because there's still a bagel shop there selling delicious. Yes, I know it well. And smoked salmon bagels. Yeah. Uh, I would say other bagel shops are available, but they're probably not. Uh, and it's not a no-go area for me. I'm absolutely fine navigating London. And what I would say about Lee Anderson's comments is I, I wouldn't apologise either. And whilst... It was perhaps a clumsy comment to make. There is a hint of truth in it, in the sense that we need to have a serious argument about Islamist bullying of our institutions, be it the legislature, the parliament, Harriet Harman wants to work from home. No, she shouldn't. She should go to work yeah. and not be intimidated. Sir Lindsay Hoyle, what did he do that for? Admit to being intimidated for the safety of their MPs and the police, of course, standing away standing away yeah. from blatant crimes, blatant crimes against, uh, uh, against terrorism, banned organisations, the black Islamist flag across London. Yeah, it is absolutely remarkable, isn't it? Johnny, good to speak to you. Thank you very much indeed. Johnny Gould there uh, with his roundup of the BBC uh, being castigated now by former Attorney-General uh, for its anti-Semitic problems, because there can be no doubt 
That is precisely what they are suffering from. And it's not been a great week, of course, for the BBC because they've also been uh, forced to apologise to the family uh, of uh, the uh, young teenager who was being messaged and paid money uh, by Hugh Edwards. We spoke about that on the show yesterday. You're watching The Independent Republic with Mike Graham. Coming up in the next hour, we're going to take a step back in time as a West End theatre chooses to segregate audiences. Would you believe it? Plus, Britain says no to boots on the ground in the face of the growing Russian threat. That and much, much more coming up after this. Stay tuned. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker. Coming up in this hour, Britain rejects France's plan to send NATO troops into Ukraine, warning it would be a major escalation in the war. Civil servants take to a Reddit forum to complain about peer pressure to turn their cameras on and the CEO of Kellogg's suggests poor people should start eating cereal for dinner to save money. Now, you might have thought that all of this diversity, inclusion and equity stuff you've been forced to listen to over the years was all about treating people equally or even fairly. At the very least, you could be forgiven for thinking that while much of it is complete nonsense, at least it was being done for a good reason. Well, hang on. Have you gone stark staring mad? I've been telling you for years that the whole IED, DEI, IDE, cobblers or whatever the acronym is, is a giant crock of nonsense invented by the race grifters and gender nutters to ensure that everyone except white heterosexual people can get some kind of advantage. Well, now we have yet more proof of the scenario and how it plays out in the rather unreal world of the wokists. Believe it or not, a West End theatre in London is about to put on a play starring Kit Harrington of Game of Thrones fame in the summer, running from June until September. Nothing unusual in that, you might think. But wait just a minute, because the play will be blacked out for two nights to anyone white. Let me explain. If you're white, you won't be able to go on two specific dates, because the writer of the play, Jeremy O. Harris, says he wants to be able to show his work to black-identifying people. He says this is necessary so that the people in the audience can watch his play without having to worry about the, in his words, white gaze. I spy a slight problem with his pre-from-the-white-gaze argument, though, because it turns out that the star of the show, Kit Harrington, is actually white. So presumably, in order to avoid his white gaze on the audience, he will have to perform with his eyes shut. This ludicrous state of affairs would be laughable were it not quite so sinister. Imagine, if you will, putting on a play at the Noel Cowd Theatre where only white people were allowed to go. You could call it White Night. How soon before the police would be at the stage door dragging people out into the street and beating them to a pulp? You get the idea. The slave play, for that is its name, is described as controversial. When it was first performed in 2019, a petition was circulated to have it cancelled. Apparently, it's about three interracial couples attempting to reinvigorate their relationships by role-playing being on a plantation. At least one audience member was apparently offended and traumatised. God help us. So now the blackout nights are designed to create, in their words, an environment in which an all-black identifying audience can experience and discuss an event in the performing arts, film, athletic and cultural spaces free from the white gaze. Fancy a ticket? Nah, you're all right.
Now, later on in the show, we'll bring you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. But before anyone else, let's take a look at what the Metro front page is saying. Uh, and I'm afraid it's about our old chum, Harry the Herbert, otherwise known as Prince Harry, otherwise known as the Duke of Sussex. You are not that special is what it says. I should look forward to seeing what some of the other front pages are saying uh, when we get those in, and we'll be sharing those with you a little bit later on with the panel. Now, Britain has rejected a French plan to send NATO troops into Ukraine, warning that it would be a major escalation in the war. French President Emmanuel Macron has suggested that several EU and NATO countries were considering deploying soldiers to the battlefield, and it comes amid criticism levelled at France and other allies for failing to pull their weight, despite Houthi attacks crippling global trade in the Red Sea. To discuss this and more, let's bring in Times Defence Editor Larissa Brown. Larissa, a very good evening to you. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We've got a nice exclusive of yours to talk about in a little while. Um, but let's uh, chat first about uh, NATO, about Emmanuel Macron. Um, we know he's not particularly um, solid on his home ground. Is this um, his kind of latest attempt to try and make France look a bit more sort of, I don't know, relevant in Europe? Well, he said that he wouldn't rule out uh, the fact that uh, troops could be sent to Ukraine. It was, they were quite interesting remarks because um, I remember a few years ago, President Biden saying that America wouldn't send troops to Ukraine. And I, and I remember speaking to a minister here in the UK and they were saying, why would he say that? Let's let's be a bit ambiguous. Let's yeah. not tell Putin exactly what we do. Let's keep him guessing. Um, and, I, and maybe that was what Ma Macron was trying to do this week. But again, quite swiftly, the US um, said that they wouldn't be sending troops in. Britain followed. They said that, of course, we wouldn't send troops in or a large scale deployment to Ukraine. And so did Germany. So it's obviously not going to... Um, to happen, uh, Putin responded also by saying that um, if they did uh, send troops into Ukraine, of course, there then would be an, an all-out war, which nobody wants to have. No, exactly right. And I mean, that's the problem, though, isn't it now? Because I've been talking to a couple of um, military experts in the last week or so, and they're all quite pessimistic about the outcome in Ukraine. They're worried that basically Putin has dug in. Uh, he may not get much uh, out of Ukraine, but he'll get a bit of it. That seems to be the kind of the current thinking in military circles. Yeah, Russia is making, you know, slow but sort of steady progress. And um, I was speaking to security sources uh, last week and they were saying that Putin is, is more optimistic now than he was a year ago. And of course, we're still waiting for that funding from America to come through. Right. They've still got this £60 billion pounds, uh, worth of uh, aid to, to, to get through Congress. Um, and one, one Ukrainian military source was telling me if that doesn't happen, then the situation will be catastrophic for the Ukrainians. Yes. Uh, there really is a, a real sense on the front line that they're running out of weapons, they're running out of ammunition. Um, and this is allowing uh, Russia to take advantage of that and to, to, to fight back, basically. Uh, so the situation is looking quite bleak at the moment. Um, and British military chiefs, I know, are also quite worried about it. And they're trying to persuade the Americans to do as much as they can. And obviously, we've got the prospect of Trump getting in later this year. Trump's um, said himself that he's sort of not happy with NATO. There are fears that he might even pull out of NATO. He's suggested that Putin should invade countries that aren't spending enough uh, money on their own defence. Um, and so it's quite a worrying uh, future that we could have. 
Yes, exactly. And is it because it's a, a, an election year, both in the US and here, that whether the public actually wants more money spent in Ukraine is going to become a much bigger issue than it has been so far? Because there's quite a strong body uh, of opinion in both here in this country and in the US where people say, well, hang on a minute, why are we keeping sending these billions and billions of pounds um, for what seems to be an endless conflict when we could be spending it on our own country? Yeah, it's an interesting argument. And um, I remember someone telling me a few years ago that there was never any, um, there's never any money in defence. Um, you don't really hear Rishi, uh, sorry, never any votes in defence. You don't really hear Rishi Sunak coming out talking about defence much. A minister told me that he isn't interested in defence or foreign policy. You know, he's more concerned about domestic policies because he thinks that that's what's going to win votes ultimately. Yeah. And we've got the budget coming up um, next week and uh, we've been told that there's not going to be any more money for uh, defence. Um, and uh, there are quite a few former defence secretaries now coming forward to say that there needs to be more money yeah. because if you have uh, these chiefs coming out saying that we're living in the most dangerous period since uh, the end of the Cold War, then why isn't something being done about it? Why aren't we investing in our armed forces? And we hear like report after report about the state of the, the military and how uh, we don't have enough ships or aircraft uh, in order to defend ourselves properly. Um, and so if you speak to military um, chiefs inside the MOD, like they really do feel that there needs to be a, a greater investment in the armed forces. Yes, that's right. And it doesn't help when you see, you know, the second firing of a, of a missile um, from a submarine in seven or eight years, both both of which have now gone wrong. And you kind of go, you're not really, really convincing me when you say, oh, don't worry, if it's actually a real one, it'll definitely work. Yeah, I mean, that was that was embarrassing, no matter how you look at it. If you, you know, the Navy said that it was an anomaly and if yeah. we were in an actual conflict, then it would have uh, worked. Um, but of well, course, we haven't that, actually... <laughs> exactly, and the proof's in the pudding. People want to see that the actual, that Trident can um, can work, basically. And I know that Grant Chats is under pressure to to do that test again, but he's um, he's not doing. Um, and it'd be interesting to see why. Why? I mean, the money is obviously um, one aspect. It costs, um, I think, it's about seventeen million dollars to to fire it. Um, so they don't want to do it repeatedly. But you would have thought they want to send Putin a message that if he does do something, then we do actually have a capable nuclear weapon to fire back at him. Yeah, exactly right. And there are some machinations behind the scenes at the armed forces. You've got an exclusive uh, in the paper tonight. Um, tell us a bit about that. That's Ukraine related as well, isn't it? Yeah, so Admiral Tony Radican, the head of the armed forces, um, Normally, he would do three years um, and he's been asked to uh, extend that for another year. So he'll actually be in post until November 2025. That's been approved by uh, Rishi Sunak and also the king, I'm told. Mm. Um, and that's quite interesting because um, sources that I was speaking to today were telling me that he's had a really crucial war, a crucial role in the war in Ukraine. Yes. And... They were saying stuff that I didn't realise before. Like he, he went to Ukraine and had this um, meeting with uh, Zelensky on his uh, on his own for uh, quite a long, quite a I think about forty five minutes, where they talked about future strategy in Ukraine and battle plans. And the Ukrainian military source was telling me that Radikin had really helped them uh, to work out what they what they do in the war war against Russia. And this comes as the Americans were a bit concerned about looking a bit too close uh, to the Ukrainians and fearing that uh, Russia might uh, retaliate in some way. And so he seems to have really um, entered sort of a vacuum and done a, a really good job. And 
clearly Rishi Sunak's impressed and wants to keep him on. Yeah. And so, I mean, as far as uh, the people you speak to are concerned, I mean, do you see this going on throughout the, the rest, certainly, of this year as a conflict? Oh, definitely. Um, I don't think there's going to be any huge breakthrough this year. Um, I think that um, there's no end in sight, really. Um, I think for something to really change, Ukraine needs to get hold of long-range missiles um, that can really hit Ukrainian te Russian territory. You know, Ukrainian military sources tell me that, they, that to, to change the change the war, they need to be hitting uh, um, cities like Moscow. Um, to, to really show that there is a cost to the war. Mm. And they can't do that at the moment because they haven't got the ability to do so. And the Americans don't want to supply them with the kit that they would be able to do that with. Um, and and yes, without without that, without sending them sort of new weapons, more aircraft, I, I just can't see it ending anytime soon. Right. And it's going to be, you know, a very interesting um, year in that case militarily because we also had recently um, General Sir Patrick Sanders coming out and saying, you know, if things get a bit hotter and if things get really, really bad in Ukraine and Russia decides to suddenly declare war on everyone, um, we should be prepared for conflict. And it was almost like calling up um, people for the First World War. He's apparently been given a dressing down for suggesting that we should have a volunteer army. Yes, uh, Radikin uh, summoned him into his office after he made that speech. That was last month, um, and said that he shouldn't be making uh, comments like that in public. That you know these discussions should be held uh, behind closed doors. And Sanders had said that you know we should be training and equipping a citizen army. Mm. And actually, that that does um, tally with conversations that I've been having. I, I went to um, a defence intelligence uh, base a few uh, weeks ago, and I was quite interested because. For the first time in, in in years, actually, people are talking a lot more about how you defend Britain. So if Britain comes in under attack, if missiles are raining down on the UK, what do we actually have to defend ourselves? And usually these conversations have all been centred around sending troops abroad and what we would do in uh, you know, various conflicts overseas. So to actually have that whole conversation um, taken taken to the UK was quite quite interesting for me, and also quite terrifying. Yeah, absolutely right. And one of the other interesting things that came out of the whole sort of conversation was, particularly on um, a lot of phone-in shows and, and and people's opinion polls, was a lot of people, particularly younger people, saying, "I don't think I want to fight for my country." Thanks very much indeed. Which I thought was quite shocking, really. Yeah. Um, uh, the thing is, the army has a, a recruitment problem at the moment, um, where young people don't want to sign up in the same way that previous generations um, did, and the military knows that it's got to do something to try and persuade youngsters to do so. One idea that uh, Sanders came up with was to have a summer boot camp, um, so like gap year students could uh, spend a month uh, seeing what it was like in the army, they get paid to do it, and the hope would be that they'd realise that actually it's a really great place to be, and um, they'd carry on as a reservist. So they're, they're, they're trying to think of lots of innovative ways of trying to persuade the um, younger generations to sign up. But, yeah, they, they are struggling with it. Yeah, they really are. Um, also, I've just got a bit of breaking news here. It's an FT story that's just come into us. Um, Vladimir Putin's forces have rehearsed using tactical nuclear weapons at an early stage of conflict with a major world power uh, with a threshold much lower than anybody um, has ever seen before, which is a bit worrying by the sounds of it. Yeah, I mean, t this is the thing, I think... Um, if you if you speak to sort of the experts in the in the UK in the in the defence uh, world, 
they they believe that the there shouldn't really be a distinction uh, between nuclear weapons. Like a nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon. It doesn't matter if it's tactical or not. But Russia does see a distinction. Um, and yes, you know, tens of thousands of people dead or hundreds of thousands of people dead. You know, it, it's just as horrifying. And obviously, if Putin was to use a tactical weapon, then that would really change the game in Ukraine. And whether NATO would intervene, I don't know. But um, we'd have to be seen to be doing something if they did. Yeah, exactly right. Larissa, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Larissa Brown, Times Defence correspondent there uh, with a big story that's going in the paper tomorrow. Uh, we'll bring you more on that, of course, when we look uh, at the papers with the panel a little bit later on in the show. You're watching the amazing Independent Republican Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, Kellogg's CEO comes up with an idiotic money-saving solution for family dinners. And also, make sure you're turning your taps off because Thames Water is set to hike up the bills by 40%. They got mad. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. I'm joined now by the former chair of the Defence Select Committee, Tory MP. Tobias Elwood. Tobias, a very good evening to you. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, you're just in time. We've just got a story from the FT front page uh, about some leaked files from Russia. Vladimir Putin apparently has been rehearsing the use of a uh, tactical nuclear weapon and supposedly the bar for its use is much lower, and we're told, than anyone in the military has ever seen. We shouldn't be spooked by this. I think it'll be something that will be digested and, and appreciated. But from the very start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he's tried to perhaps get the West to, to be intimidated, to become uh, risk-averse or continue a sense of uh, apprehension as to what might happen next. We need to absolutely monitor the escalatory ladder, but it should not at all deter us from helping the Ukrainian People. I was there on the weekend, and they are short of their munitions by half. Uh, Russia is uh, able to outgun them five times uh, on the from a, from an artillery perspective, um, compared with what the Ukrainians are receiving. We need to up our game. We need to recognise that uh, Russia will not stop here if he's able to claim any form of success. And uh, this is a European war. We are involved and he wants to emulate his hero Stalin. He's actually more powerful than Stalin because Stalin at least had a communist regime in the Kremlin holding him back. What happened to Navalny shows that uh, uh, Putin has crushed any opposition in Russia completely. So this uh, talk potentially of using tactical nuclear weapons absolutely needs to be uh, taken in, into consideration. And I'm sure uh, will be discussed by the Five Eyes community, by NATO, and indeed by the UK as well. But I hope it will distract us from our primary objective at the moment, given European security, of supporting Ukraine. And are you one of those um, Tory MPs who thinks that Jeremy Hunt should be setting aside a bit more money for defence? Because defence chiefs keep telling me that, you know, they haven't got as much money as they would like. They need more money, particularly now that we're living in more dangerous times. And yet, uh, the Treasury doesn't seem to want to stump up, you know, the actual cash. Well, I've been calling for us to move to 3% uh, for some time for the very reason we're talking about, to build our resilience. Let's be honest, there is a 1930s feel to the world right now where uh, 
countries are starting to form new dangerous alliances, they're rearming and so forth. This is our period in which we can take stock ourselves of uh, perhaps the storm clouds gathering uh, again. It also, though, is an election year too. And as I mentioned before, if I'm saying Europe is at war, but people in Britain don't uh, perhaps appreciate that Europe uh, is back at war again, that penny must drop. And then more people like you and me will be placing pressure on government to increase the defence budget. So I suspect that whoever wins the next general election, there will be an, another review to upgrade our defence posture for the very reasons that we've just been discussing. Can you imagine Sir Keir Starmer wanting to spend more money on defence? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. Uh, it, because perhaps Labour, over decades, have always had a perhaps a hesitant perspective when it comes to defence. They've actually... The military has actually done very well because they don't ever want to be accused of not providing the money that's required. So um, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Ultimately... I want our Conservative government to uh, increase defence budget, budget, not just to 2.5%, but ultimately to 3% as well. Right. And speaking of, of sort of conflict, there's quite a bit of conflict back here. Um, obviously, what happened last week in the House of Commons has been much discussed. Um, it now turns out that uh, we're going to spend £31 million of taxpayers' money um, to protect MPs and to ensure that they can continue to work in the Palace of Westminster. You were the unfortunate recipient, Tobias, of a, of a sort of flash mob outside your home um, down in the West Country there some a couple of weeks ago. Um, what is going on? And do you not think that if we're going to pay all this money out to protect MPs, that we should know who's actually making these threats? Uh, there's no doubt about it. But we should make it very clear that how democracy is affected if good people don't step forward. Um, you know, I've just sort of alluded to what's happened in the past, in the 1930s and so on. What country was it that stepped forward? It was Britain. We did so because we had the leadership, the capability, the strength to do so that came from good people stepping forward to become parliamentarians, to then form the governments, not just in that period, but going back in our past. Now, if good people don't want to continue to come forward today, Britain is all the more weaker for that. So it is important that anybody considering stepping forward into public life does feel safe. And right now, you can understand that people will, will take the judgment, given what happened to me. But I should also say to many other colleagues as well, sometimes on a smaller scale, and particularly to women MPs too, that people do not feel safe. And that's to do with other challenges in our society and so forth. It's also to do with how people have chosen to test perhaps the boundaries or what is acceptable to protest in public, uh, in the public right. space at the moment. And what was it like for you to have that mob outside your house? And what did you tell your children when they were wondering why people were holding up banners that said you had blood on your hands? Uh, absolutely astonishing. We were actually informed by the police and give them their due. They monitor these things very carefully uh, on the internet and so forth, in social media, and they advise do not go home. Do not go back to your house. But the fact that I couldn't go back to my house shows the, you know, the power that's been perhaps utilised by these people. I think we've discussed on your programme in the past, you know, the new legislation that was required to protect war memorials. Now, in a normal society, you wouldn't need that extra legislation because we would actually agree you shouldn't be behaving that way. You should have respect and reverence for war memorials. But as I say, 
not just this kind of protest, but all sorts of protests. They are testing the boundaries of what is acceptable, and it's so, so important then that as a society as a whole, not just Parliament and us legislating, but all of us condemn this sort of behaviour. Absolutely right that you've been allowed to demonstrate, but not outside a uh, parliamentarian's house. Indeed, anybody in public office, in fact. Right. No, I think that would be something that most people would agree with. Tobias, thank you very much indeed. Tobias Elwood there uh, talking to us about the state we are in, not only in terms of our defence budget, but in terms of what we need to do uh, right here at home as well. Um, now, let's talk about some other whinging sounds that we've heard coming from the Work From Home Brigade down in Whitehall, because never mind Putin's war, our darling mandarins have far more pressing issues to attend to. And if you haven't read it for yourself, I'm elated to tell you that a load of civil servants took to the internet forum Reddit recently to bash orders calling for them to turn their cameras on during work meetings. Not an unreasonable request for most of them, you'd think, but apparently not, because one Whitehall melter described the incident as insidious. I mean, these are the people who basically want to work from home, um, but they don't want to have to turn on a camera just in case anybody sees what exactly they're doing while they're working from home. I mean, it seems to me to be a complete ridiculous kind of uh, manoeuvrings uh, of people who always say, oh, but we do much more work when we're at home. Well, obviously, they don't. They don't want to put the cameras on. Uh, they don't want to see um, people in their underwear, I dare say, or their pyjamas, or maybe even in bed. Who can say? Uh, we've got the panel back now, though. Um, so, guys, I'm just going to ask you about what you think of this working from home manoeuvrings. I mean, we were told just the other day, I think um, civil servants were asked how many days they'd like to come into the office if they were made to, and they said two. What, two? Two uh, annually? Two days a week. Two days a week? Yeah, yeah no more than that, because yeah. they're so used to not being there. Yeah, yeah. Well, these things are... They have a real life of their own, a real mm. mission creep. Yeah. You know, what started out as an emergency response to an unprecedented situation very quickly became the new normal. Yes. And it's become embedded in all sorts of... all across the private mm. sector, but especially by the looks of things within the civil service. And that, that I think the, the entitlement, the petulance of yes. saying, I won't even switch on my camera... Right. That is... I mean, that is a, a, a really, really hard argument to make, that you're saying, well, I want to be at home, but I want absolutely no accountability because this is an unfair yes. infringement on my rights right. and more as more an people, in private individual and, more more people and it's saying, like, no, but you have obligations to your workplace. Yes. We all do. But apparently they don't want obligations and, and we hear more and more of people who say, I don't want to be emailed when it's out of work mm -hmm. hours. Well, when is out of work hours when you're working from home, exactly? It's very interesting that Tobias Elwood talked about people testing boundaries because one of my themes is that the law itself is in a bad way. Yes. The boundaries are collapsing. So people are reaching out to test them. They're finding out that they don't really exist. And they're going, ooh, this is fun. Let me test another boundary. And this is clearly a boundary test. Right. You, know, you receive payment in obligation for working. It is an obligation. I'm glad we started using words. We need to start finding words again, like yeah. obligation and duty. Yes. You know, but if you're responsibility. Re responsibility. Yeah. You, you receive payment to do work, then the, there are going to be obligations placed upon you that you may not like. Yeah. And that's not insidious. And we keep finding these emotional responses. Very, they are very child. Having raised a, yeah. a child, they are very toddler-like. Yes. We're living <laughs> oh, in a very, very toddler-like so. world. Oh, very much so. <laughs> well, Prince Harry's the absolute embodiment of the toddler, isn't he? I don't like it, so I'm going to just complain and complain and complain. Because I've got loads of money, I'm just going to keep hiring more lawyers to get what I want. But that's the other thing, isn't it, Ella? You get now... Um, we're not, I mean, I'm not saying... I mean, we're all fortunate we have jobs that we probably quite enjoy doing, and not everybody does. But, you know, when I first sort of got my first job as a teenager working in some bakery or other, picking the green bits out of strawberries and getting horribly, horribly cold in a basement, you know, it wasn't meant to be enjoyable. You did work because you wanted money. And that was basically why you did it. Well, I think 
I mean, the interesting distinction in all of this is the, the removal of the boundary between public and private mm. or working life and home life. Yes. And, you know, that those things... Most people who have normal jobs, whether it be driving taxis in supermarkets, yeah. in factories, cleaning, whatever... The bulk of people, in other words. ...have a very clear... ...want to have a mm. very clear delineation because... You go to work to earn the money to enjoy your life at home yes. with your partner or your kids or your dog or whatever. Um, and uh, there's this sort of, particularly within the civil service, there's just this total blurring where mm. they want to treat the office like their home and their home like yeah. the office. And look, I've done some pretty brilliant articles, I think, from five o'clock in the morning from my bed. Yes. You know, it's quite possible. <laughs> That's spe a <laughs> specific job that but, you can do for your yeah, bed, But though. there's, but, you know, the, the idea that you wouldn't, when you're in a sort of work environment, whether it's a meeting online or otherwise, that you wouldn't be able to turn up in your public persona, yeah. which is put together and ready for the world, mm. and then be whoever you want to be in your, in your private life. That sort of distinction is just completely gone now. Yeah. And that's a real problem because it means that people don't have those sort of... Well, one, we don't treat the public sphere seriously. The world of work is meant to be a serious social political hub. Yes. And the world of home is meant to be your private safe space, your right. genuine safe space. Yeah, yeah. And if we don't have those distinctions, then we don't have those places anymore. And people yeah. become very unmoored mm. and a bit screwed up. And yeah. I think it is, particularly with the younger generation, it's like you don't really understand how to be in the world. Because well, and also now we hear blurring. all these stories about all of these, these young people who are too stressed out to go to work. You know, they're suffering from anxiety yeah. and, you know, probably because they don't speak to anybody. You know, they sit there on their own, tapping away at a computer. Which is... Making everything. No wonder they're anxious yeah. to go out, you know? And if you're not put into situations that are sometimes testing and challenging, mm. then you never develop that resilience right. at all. And it's, it's, it's very important to do, and I'm sure that we've all had days at work that we were dreading, and then we turned up and it wasn't as bad as we right. feared, or we really worked hard and really set our minds to it and yeah. achieved something, and then you come away with a real... It's a, it's a feeling unlike any other feeling, mm. actually, when you've achieved something yes. great. Absolutely, I mean, especially when you were expecting it to be horrible. Yeah. And it was yeah. actually quite rewarding. Well, I mean, as you said, you know, we're lucky to have jobs that, mm. that we find interesting mm. and not every job will necessarily give that level of, of satisfaction. But I think if you're not even venturing outside, yeah. you're not even taking the risk of maybe experiencing something right. different. It's like you want every day to be very predictable and manageable and contained. I'm sure we've also all done jobs which weren't particularly enjoyable yeah. and yes. which were well, difficult and challenging. But and, the interesting you know. thing about that is that work life, even the kind of most rubbish job that we've all done you can imagine i used to work um, in a cheese shop which was like working in a fridge the fun <laughs> of it was that there was a guy that i fancied there and so that would drive yeah. me to go as a teenager mm. and so you a part of a big part of working life for people is the people they work with and the free right. conversation you can have Absolutely. You know, the relationships you can have and the trend in working life the kind of penalization of working life has been such that whether it's you know overreach of hr Zero mm. tolerance to harassment policies, speech codes, yeah. diversity, equality training, yeah. blah, 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 has made it so that people, the, the one fun bit of sort of work life, which is the space where you could have a conversation with people, use yeah. that word banter, whatever it is, right. that's been clamped down yeah. on. So I sort of almost, in a weird way, don't blame people from being like, oh, for God's sake, I'll just right. work from home and yeah. <laughs> my cat. Well, this is it. And no I mean, most people, I think, I'm right in saying, meet their partners or their future partners exactly. at work. Yeah. They used and, to. You know, used to, yeah. yeah. Used to. But now they're not having, now they don't have partners. Now they're just like, you know, most of them have given up sex, they've given up fun, they've given apps. up drinking. Well, that, that yeah. is what's you happening. Know, but they, God save us. This is one of my recurring things, that, that rules are good for mental health. Mm. Okay, so one of the reasons I like law, because I think we all establish right now I, I quite like law, yeah. is that, and my best mate will do this, if, if I get very anxious and very stressed, 
we start doing law. Mm. Because rules just calm you down. You know where the limits are. You know that you're safe. A boundary is, is what a law is. As long as it's not the government making new laws. Well, and making, well that, fence, because there are too many in. laws, no. that, then that drives you mad. Exactly. That, that, that destroys exactly. the, the clarity of law. And, and we need to get back to the idea that there are rules on, on adults, that they have to do things. Mm. One of the big ones is that, I mean, I, actually, I think, I, was it you I saw tweeting about um, this new phenomena of, of listening to a video on your phone, oh, yeah, on yeah. the oh, train? Yeah. Yes. Right, yeah. well, we used to have a rule that you didn't do that, and yeah. we need that rule back. You did. Yeah. We, we used to have a rule that adults didn't show emotion in public, and that's mm. because... Adults showing emotion is very disturbing for people around it. Yeah. I mean, particularly, I, mean, I as a middle-aged man yes. suddenly start having an emotional breakdown. That that's going to be very scary for everybody. That all around. changed because I'm quite strong. When, when Princess Diana died, that was when that started. <laughs> but we're getting out onto that uh, yeah. in another in another day. Because I'm going to show you something to cheer you up here. Uh, this is having your wedding on a farm. Um, it could be a mistake if you get that particular pun, especially if a cow uh, has a beef with a couple. As happened in this video that's currently doing the rounds online. Have a look. In order to proceed, I must now ask if any person here present... <laughs> <laughs> That's so cute. I mean, it was in a field with a cow, so I suppose... But the cow had very good timing, you'd have to say. But that is... I mean, that's, so, that's hilarious. Yeah. You would dine out on that forever. Imagine if you had that wedding online it's and you were so... like, no cow, no people, <laughs> you know, both of you sort of <laughs> sitting in a room on your own, toasting... I remember when COVID started, people used to join. There was some new app that everybody had, and you'd all have a drink at the same time. Oh, it was hideous. God. I did it Awful. once, and I was like, I'm not doing party. this anymore. Oh, house party. There. That's it, house party. The biggest party. false advertising. Yeah, absolute rubbish. Cobblers. I just was like, I'd rather drink on my own and wake up depressed, to be honest, <laughs> and sit there with a load of people pretending you're having a good time like you're in a bar together. <laughs> oh, I, I don't think so. So much. No. Um, let's go to something slightly more serious now, though, because we've been talking, obviously, about migrants and the numbers coming across. There's been another incident today where three people are reported uh, to have drowned off the coast of northern France this afternoon. Small boat going into trouble. Uh, Cap Grinez, I think, is the name. Not quite sure if that's the right pronunciation. Um... A French Navy frigate, French Navy patrol boat positioned off uh, Boulogne-sur-Mer, according to the Marine Traffic website. I mean, this is just going to keep happening, isn't it? Because they're not going to stop coming. No, and they're obviously... Um, Maddie talked about the whole Leanson thing being a sort of distraction. Yeah. Um, it, it is the way of the world and the way of the press and politics at the moment that something comes along and all the big issues get pushed to the side for um, a bit of sort of infighting. Yeah. And obviously the... But... but it's election coming up and the issue of immigration, whether you're liberal on it, illiberal on it, um, but the issue of control and borders and having some sense that things mm. are running properly is, prob is going to be up there with yeah. the top five for people at the ballot box. Um, so it's, uh, I mean, the tragedy of this is that there are people dying and it's people's lives are at stake. But the broader political question is whether or not this country has a control of yeah. the system, and yes. it clearly doesn't. No, it absolutely doesn't. And we keep hearing yeah. more and more about the backlog getting larger, the people that they can't process, and then they can't process them, and then if they do process them and they fail to get asylum, they don't know what to do with them. Yeah, yeah. well, I, and I talk about rules as, as, as boundaries, and the ultimate border, the ultimate rule, the ultimate boundary is your na nation-state border. Yeah. And people will want, again, if it'll link to mental health, people will feel anxious if they believe that their national border is not safe and cannot be defended mm. and isn't there. If I take your fr the front door off your house and then tell you, don't worry about it, yeah. just go upstairs, go to bed. Exactly. Are you going to sleep well? Yeah. I, I don't think you are. Well, this is it. You yeah. wouldn't leave your door open in the morning and then let 10 people in just as you leave. And then when you come home, there's 100 people in there. And you go, yeah, that's fine, don't worry. And then the next morning, it's 200 people. 
it's not sustainable. No. Yeah, but we, no. we do we do need to have t rules and, and boundaries when it comes to this because you know the, the world is in turmoil in yeah. parts of the world. And there are, there are desperate people who are willing to mm. make these journeys, yeah. and heartbreaking things are happening. Um, and it's empowering the people traffickers, some of yeah. the worst people on the planet. And this is what's happening because the incentives are as they are, and we yes. don't have a proper system to control it. Right. It's much worse in America than it and is here. I think you don't need to deny the humanity of the people who are trying to come here and risking everything to come here mm. to also believe that rules are incredibly important and actually, I think, moral. Yeah. No, I think yeah. that's absolutely right. But there's such confusion. Have a look at this. This is a, a serving chief constable talking about Islamophobia and... You'll be interested in this, Stephen, because, you know, this is the law, apparently. See if you can make any sense out of this. Islamophobic crime is up 140% year on year. Um, it does seem to have a pattern that coincides with national uh, protest as well, where we see spikes in the weekends uh, where those events are happening or where events uh, of significance happen in Gaza. So uh, I don't really know what he's talking about, do you? No. Um, oh, I was hoping you could help me out with this. No, I, I mean, I, I could, if I were feeling charitable, I could, I could rescue him and I could construct an argument that he's yes. simply confused about what he meant. But I'm not entirely sure that's what's happening. I no. think that there is a great push to claim victim status. Yeah. And if you can claim victim status, then you wield political power. And the fact that he was trying to effectively say the... Because, I mean, I'm in a, in a, a sort of semi-open warfare with, with the Metropolitan Police because I keep pointing out that they have powers to stop these protests yes. on a Saturday night now. Right. They don't need new ones. Right. They've got them now, and that they're not doing anything. So effectively, I mean, I've, I've started to question whether they're abusing their discretion. Yeah. But he's basically saying, oh, these poor protesters, look at how terrible yeah. victims they are. Well, and the other thing they're doing... For them. Well, the other thing they're doing is they seem to me to be sort of categorising incidents as particular types of crime. And surely either it's a crime or it's not a crime. You know, for example, the projection of uh, from the river to the sea onto Big Ben, last week they said was not a crime, but it could be a crime in certain other circumstances, possibly not in a public protest scenario. So presumably it means if I say from the river to the sea to you, it could be a crime in a room, but not when you project it onto Parliament. And then with Islamophobia, they're sort of going, well, that wouldn't be a crime, but because it's Islamophobia, now it is. So the rules are breaking down. Yeah. We have no clarity of rules, because that's what we call in the trade gibberish. Yeah. I mean, that's just what it is. And I was explaining to the others, you have to reach a certain seniority in law before you can turn around and go, do you know what? Actually, the problem's not me. It's not that I'm a bit dim. Mm. It's, the law itself is just, is just in a confused mess. And it is clearly in a confused... Let's be sympathetic to the Metropolitan Police then. If they genuinely believe what they are saying, then they don't understand the law. So they right. are in confusion about what the yeah. law is. So let's clarify like it to that. help them. Doesn't it, Ella? Well, yes, but I think part of the problem is that the, you know, the government's approach to any sort of issue in relation to rise of anti-Semitism or alleged rise in, in Islamophobia is to let's just ban everything. Let's clamp down on the protests. Let's stop people from doing anything, expressing any kind of political opinion. And... That has led to, I think, in part, the sort of febrile times that we're living in, which is that there is a lot of tension mm. between communities. We know that there's a very... I mean, it's open in front of your eyes, a very obvious rise in anti-Semitism. But there have also been tensions. I don't want to completely dismiss... I'm not sure that it's up 140%, but I don't want to completely dismiss the um, claims about the rise in Islamophobia or, or prejudice against Muslims, because there is, a, there is tensions now where if people feel like they can't 
talk about things openly and they can't say, well, look, from the river to the sea, I mean it this way, but I take it this way. And, yeah. you know, how, let's figure it out. What does it mean? What do either of us actually mean? That you end up becoming entrenched in your camps and that causes yeah. ugly behaviour. Yeah. So that, you know, uh, you know, our government needs to be able to, or any politician needs to be able to tackle the real issue, which is an inability to talk straight mm. and talk in you yeah. know, terms with each other. And censorship only is going to make this uglier. It I will think make Ella's it. so right there, but but also in that void, you end up with organisations like the Met Police, who are not really equipped to do this, suddenly becoming like almost religious experts yeah. and they're pronouncing, mm. oh, right. what, what does jihad mean? Yes, um, and they're telling this you This is one exactly, interpretation yeah. of from the river right. to the sea. And so into this like void... Um, someone will try to bring some clarity and they'll probably end up doing doing it clumsily and stupidly and very wrong indeed. So it is important that we have those yeah, conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one silly one for you before we go to uh, a break. Let them eat flakes. Says here, the CEO of Kellogg's has apparently said that um, you should eat cereal for dinner. Well, we all know why he's saying you should eat cereal for dinner. <laughs> I mean, I have, because I've worked in various different time slots in this business, I've often eaten... Um, you know, pasta for breakfast and had a glass of wine with it when I finished working all night uh, or had, a, you know, a bowl of porridge just before I go to bed because, you know, uh, it might be you know, midnight or something, you know, whatever. I don't think it's a problem. You can eat cereal whenever you like, but every, I mean... Every tea... Um, back me up, Maddie. Every millennial teenage girl ate cereal for breakfast, lunch, yeah. dinner. It's called the Special K diet. Oh, my God, I yes. lived off of it. We're told that it was very toxic. We're told that you could drop a jean size yes. in two weeks by I mean, it worked, special... but you Of course were, it did, you were, you're probably you eating about 800 calories a day. It's or kind 900. of university-style food, isn't it? It's what, you know, <laughs> that's a blast from the that's kind of, kind of the things. That, one, of the, one of the things that you do is just eat, you know, a packet... You get buy a packet of cornflakes. It lasts yeah. for a month. And that's all you eat. Well, the CEO of Kellogg's is probably... Because I... One of the things is... Because my voice is very confusing. I, I did grow up normal. And we... I have to say, this may backfire. Because we, as a child, I never had Kellogg's cereal. Mm. We had Safeway Savers cereal. Yeah. Because yeah. we couldn't afford right. Kellogg's cereal. And I have this great obsession. I still have Kellogg's cereal in the house now because I have this <laughs> damaging... It was very damaging. I was right. Worried so about you reward so yourself I, now actually, I do. I, it, it's, a lu- <laughs> it's a luxury to me. And I... Um, You've made it. And I, I may... This might backfire on him because they may... Work, but if they... If they, he want, he says, you know, to save money, well, then you're going to go for a budget brand. Yeah, absolutely right. Could damage them. Very good point. Uh, right, you're watching the incredible Independent Republic, Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, we're going to have a sneaky peek at tomorrow's front pages. But first, uh, get your flight socks on. That's right, because we're off to the world of woke straight after this. Stay exactly where you are. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The world of woke. Do you remember when you couldn't move without running into one of those protests from Insulate Britain? You know the one, sitting down on the M25 every single day for weeks at a time, being sent to jail, then getting released and going straight back to a different spot on the motorway. Then there was the carpenter, you know, that one who came to visit the Independent Republic and went viral because I told him he could grow concrete. The clip is still ratcheting up millions and millions of views three years later, but it seemed that the only way out of our climate change emergency was to insulate every home in Britain. Or at least that was last that year's argument from the eco-nutters du jour. We've moved on now, of course, and now we have to put up with the Just Stop Oil tow rags and Animal Rebellion, a bunch of middle-class tosspots who exist purely to go to Harrods and four cartons of milk out onto the floor. Just as annoying as all the others, though, and just as useless at changing anyone's mind. But wait... What's that I see on the horizon? Could it be another failed government policy that was brought in to try and appease these maniacs? Yes, 
Indeed, it's the billion-pound Great British Insulation Scheme started up last year with a target of insulating 100,000 homes a year for three years. Well, I've got some bad news for the Climate Change Brigade. It's all going a bit slowly. The idea is that the more houses you insulate, the more houses are made more energy efficient. But, of course, that's the theory, and the theory doesn't work in practice. It will come as no surprise to any of you that the scheme has become cumbersome and bureaucratic. And there aren't enough contractors out there to do the work, so naturally the government is paying top dollar to those that are willing to do it. As a result, just 2,900 properties have been insulated, and we're already eight months into the programme. That represents just 3% of the target. At this rate, it will apparently take over 60 years to complete the project. Brilliant. Senior industry figures now fear the government will ditch the whole idea because it's so far off doing what was intended. It's likely to go the same way as the £1.5 billion Green Homes Grant, which was launched and then scrapped just six months later. The whole idea was the brainchild of Boris Johnson, but rather like his legacy, it looks to be pretty tarnished. Even Ed Millipede called it a fiasco, and he's the expert. Just pull the plug on it. You know it makes sense. That is the world of work. The world of woke. It's amazing, isn't it, how sort of three billion pounds just rolls off the tongue. Two schemes that I didn't even know they were doing, which are not working at all. Anyway, let's have a look at the front pages of the papers, shall we? You are not that special, it says on the front page of um, the Metro. He's not going to like that, is he, Prince Harry? Bombshell ruling. But he's going to spend more of our money in an appeal. Is there any point? Uh, so he, he don't buy into this this melodrama. He is not going to appeal. He is going to if he takes action and he'll do it on advice. He will ask for permission to appeal because he's just like the rest of us and he doesn't get to demand that the court of appeal pays him attention. And it will only be if this trial judge thinks that there's merits in an appeal, or if he applies to the court of appeal, if the court of appeal thinks that there's merits right. in an appeal. So you know that that is an open question. I think I'd be foolish to try and second guess them, but this is a very comprehensive judgment, and um, you know he got the full attention of a proper high court judge yes. for a very long time. Yes, he's got a very comprehensive judgment, and. Uh, if you don't like the outcome, that's fine, but you have to sort of respect the process a bit. Well, quite. And we've got, I think, an inside look at the sun um, on this particular story as well, um, because it seems as though this is yet another example of Harry then just going, I don't like the ruling, so I'm going to have another go. Mm-hmm. Well, they have a quote here, which is a letter that um, the, the Duke of Sussex wrote to um, the head of the civil service. And he says, I would like the person's name who is willing to take accountability for this choice, please. Right. And it all sounds a bit sort of like... I'd like to speak to the manager. Yes. You know, I don't. You know, there's a there's Do you a, know who I am? a fly in my soup. Do, yeah. Don't you? Don't you know? There who it I is. Am? There. Yeah. Yeah. Just take well, no for an it answer. Is very... To tell you the reason why he lost, it's because they have a very comprehensive system for doing all of yeah. this and for making these decisions. And it, you know, and he can still get actual protection. You yeah, know? exactly. The, the people Absolutely. who are saying it's wrong are not understanding that he will still be able to apply for protection whenever he comes. Yeah, and it is it's simply wrong to suggest that one individual, out of you know whatever reason, decided he shouldn't get protection. Yeah, it's a properly done process, which is why the judge said that it wasn't irrational. Um, and it and it was and it was appropriately done and not unlawful. I think yeah. a lot of people can't get their heads around the sort of the hypocrisy of um, Harry and Meghan, which is that on the one hand he constantly invokes the tragedy of his mother yes. and her hounding by the press and the problems of fame and says he doesn't want that, which is fair enough. You can imagine why he would feel that way. Yeah. But then in the same at the same time, 
uh, him and Megan are having camera crews following them around skiing. Yes. Are supporting, yeah. you know, right. deals with Netflix and all the rest of it. So it's like he wants to be... It's, it's a bit like what Maggie says. It's extremely entitled. He wants fame. <laughs> that's all to pay right. him attention, but only at the right time. And nobody's allowed to write anything. And nobody's allowed to write anything unless he okays it. But that's the thing. You know, if he yeah. wanted to be safe, he probably shouldn't have moved to a country where forty thousand people died last year from yeah. gunshot wounds. You know. But I remember when after the um, the Oprah Winfrey interview. I guess that was maybe a couple of years ago yeah. now. Maybe longer, I can't remember. To be honest, I'm... I've probably lost four interest. years ago, I've actually. Lost, I think a lot of people are fed up to the back yeah. of hearing oh, about are. them it's one way or another. But I remember a lot of the um, sort of Meghan and Harry fans were saying, oh, well, they, they're not asking for anything unreasonable. They, they, they don't, they're not necessarily <laughs> asking for, like, privacy in a private life. They're asking for a private life on their terms. Yes. Think, well, no one gets life that. Life isn't like that. If you're going to do things publicly, right. people are allowed to have an opinion. Yeah, sorry. You don't get to make millions and millions of pounds no, from writing like, books even, even... if you're not yeah. uh, somebody that people are going to be interested in. And I've been a book that said no one paid attention to Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I just want to get this across because I think this is very important. Court time itself is a limited resource. Yes. yes. The attention of a high court judge. We can't just snap our fingers and create no. high court judges. It's incredibly hard. We don't right. have many of them. You know, <laughs> having their attention and their time mm. and a proper trial process is, is not just expensive. It is a resource in itself. And how much of our court system is mm. he intending to yeah. personally <laughs> Well, I know there was a moment last year when he had six different actions going on yes. in the high court at the same time. And we Unbelievable. Hear, we're always hearing about how terribly backlogged yeah. they are and how people are not right. hearing, getting hearing. He got for six cases years. simultaneously on the go. Amazing. Yeah. Um, just for something slightly lighter, front page of the I newspaper. There's some stuff about the budget which I don't care about. I do care about the fashion police. Men should. Uh, this is from Greg James. Men, he says, stop clothes shaming me for wearing a pink jumper. Is this peak sort of you know? I'll write about anything. Um, <laughs> just ask me anything and I'll write it. <laughs> Because it looks a bit like that, doesn't it? Well, we've, mean, all, we've all written a column like that at some yeah. point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wear a wondering... pink shirt from time to time, but I don't think I've got a pink jumper. <laughs> this reminds me of during lockdown when I actually wrote a column about um, rearranging my bookshelves. Right. That was a, not a fertile time for me. No, um, no you know, you but can only Greg do James what you can doesn't do. have this excuse. I don't know. I would have thought after all the the Barbie um, vibes last yeah. summer, maybe that maybe we've hit peak Barbie and people have gone off maybe the that's whole what it is. Ken thing. Yeah, well, maybe. I, I can give him a top life tip, which Go is on. to don't worry about it. We'll solve it with what Laura's called the, the affluxion of time. Mm. Just become a middle-aged man and then no-one cares what you look like. Exactly right. <laughs> in fact, they stopped looking at you. Yeah. Um, Southeastern trains in trouble. <laughs> They've left thousands of people apparently stranded. There's been a landslip somewhere in Kent. And I have personally experienced the Southwest train, Southeast train. Oh, they go down to, to, to Sussex and it's horrendous. And people are now saying it's got to the point where you just don't even know when the trains are running. They cancel them willy-nilly, no driver. You know, oh, there's been a landslip. Oh, uh, we might get a train to you later on. It's just ridiculous. I mean, you travel on trains. I, yeah, I do a fair bit because I'm often um, sort of have some like caring responsibilities and my my my, my mm. parents. So I'm often up and down um, between Warwickshire and yeah. London. I'm usually actually I'm lucky because Chiltern Railways is actually pretty good. Okay. Um, I really feel for people down on the south coast because southern and southeastern seem to be Hopeless. the ones that are absolute horror stories yeah. left left yeah. right and centre. South southern trains actually, if you go on them, if you go from Hastings to um, I think it's Brighton. You mm. go in and out of, e of, of of Eastbourne like twice. You go in and then you come back out and you go past it again. It's when like, I... is this the actual route? <laughs> it is. That's when the I way lived, you do it. When I lived in Brighton, you just you wouldn't travel on a Sunday. You right. just wouldn't. You couldn't. Right. Because it didn't matter how much you pleaded. The ticket yeah. office, there was never any trains. Yeah. It's been such a problem for such a long time. Mm. 
I think this is why the, the, the strikes haven't really been as effective as they yeah. would have hoped them to be, because people just have given up. Yeah, and more people are now working from home. Yeah. I think that they've actually picked a very bad moment to compete completely implode, mm. because actually people are getting so fed up with the companies they with really what they're are. doing. And especially now that working habits have changed. Yeah. So it's dramatically. True. We're out of time, unbelievably. We didn't get a chance to do anything else, but thank you very much indeed to everybody. Thank you. Uh, you've been watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thanks to all of my guests and my panel. Brilliant. I'll see you tomorrow at 8 pm, only on Talk TV. See you later. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.